I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 78, we read The Power of the Powerless by Vaclav Havel, published in 1978. Vaclav Havel was a Czech playwright, essayist, poet, dissident, and politician. He was the 10th and last president of Czechoslovakia from 89 to 92, and the first president of the Czech Republic from 1993 to 2003. He wrote over 20 plays and numerous nonfiction works translated internationally. He received the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom and was a founding signatory of the Prague Declaration on European Conscience and Communism. Beginning in the 1960s, his work turned to focus on the politics of Czechoslovakia. After the Prague Spring, he became increasingly active. In 1977, his involvement with the Human Rights Manifesto Charter 77 brought him international fame as the leader of the opposition in Czechoslovakia. It also led to his imprisonment. The 1989 Velvet Revolution launched Havel into the presidency. In this role, he led Czechoslovakia and later the Czech Republic to multi-party democracy. His 13 years in office saw radical change in his nation, including its split with Slovakia, which Havel opposed, its ascension into NATO, and started the negotiations for membership in the European Union, which was attained in 2004. All right, so in this treatise, Václav Havel describes to us what it was like to live in what he calls a post-totalitarian system. He says, our system is most frequently characterized as a dictatorship, but he goes on to say that that's not quite right, and it doesn't describe the system anymore. He says, the system in which we live has very little in common with the classical dictatorship. Here, each country has been completely penetrated. This means the Eastern Bloc has been completely penetrated by a network of manipulatory instruments controlled by the superpower center and totally subordinated to its interests. And of course, we're talking about the Soviet Union under the control of the Soviet Union. It commands an incomparably more precise ideology that in its elaborateness and completeness is almost a secularized religion. And he's going to go on to describe what he means by that. But he says, the inner aim of the post-totalitarian system is not mere preservation of power in the hands of a ruling clique. The social phenomenon of self-preservation is subordinated to something higher, to a kind of blind automatism which drives the system. And I think this treatise is essentially a description of the extent and sort of his description of the pervasiveness of this system, this automatism. Later he calls it the panorama. But the society, once it's been set up, is no longer accurately described as a dictatorship, although there are dictator characteristics, but you don't have so much a person. It's not combined in a person of a dictator so much as like a system and the world around you and just kind of the overarching like gaze of the Soviet Union and what it's done to their society. Yeah. I mean, he he talks about how Sovietologists in those days, Kremlinologists, whichever you want to call it the people the people in America and the West who studied the Soviet Union try to figure it out would look at the different people in the Politburo and say well this one wants this this one wants that you know try to guess at motivations and who was really in charge Havel's saying the system was in charge and that these were all just sort of gray men who were cogs in a machine just like everybody else in a Soviet style uh, culture and, and economy 
it wasn't a dictatorship like old time dictatorships. It was the system was sort of the dictatorship itself. And it just plugged in different men at the top and, and the other, and the levels. And it just kind of recycled it and the ideas and, and how you rose up wasn't by that sort of revolution or, you know, something bombastic or, or, you know, the acclamation of the crowds. It was because you were, you know, the best at sort of checking the boxes on this depressing gray system. When you, when you think about Soviet history too, it, it's, and this is, I mean, it's the same history for their for their satellite nations. You think who who ran the Soviet Union? Lenin, and then Stalin, and then Khrushchev, and then you sort of lose the thread, right? Because it wasn't that important. It was they were all doing the same thing. They were all just sort of like out of a Soviet dictator out of central casting for dictators. You know, he was just the guy of the week. Who was who was in charge in seventy eight? I'm not sure. And Dropov, Brezhnev, yeah. I, I actually don't remember. Because they were all sort of just doing the same thing. It was the system. It became sort of like an automatic system. And they, so I hadn't thought about it that way. But the way Havel describes the difference between the classical dictatorship and the post-totalitarian regime, it's really about this that secularized religion you mentioned, that, that ideology that's taken over even the personalities of the people running it. And this to me just really made me reflect on... I think it, it has kind of a, a religious component, almost religious, or mm-hmm. maybe even in the pejorative, you'd call a cult type of behavior, or I think we're dealing with this a little bit. We should talk about this in a minute, but I think we're dealing with it in America when it comes to thought control relative to critical theory and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. he says, uh, while life in, in its essence moves towards plurality, diversity, independent constitution, and self-organization, the post-totalitarian system demands conformity, uniformity, and discipline, but it's not from like a Saddam Hussein or a, or a Stalin who is going to come and destroy your family in the middle of the night or something like that so much as he says the system serves people only to the extent necessary to ensure that people will serve it. And an individual's desire, and this goes to the point that you just made about, about whoever's in charge, an individual's desire for power is admissible insofar as its direction coincides with the direction of the automatism of the system. So you have to be a company man, right? To mm-hmm. You move up the chain. And I think probably the reason, like you said, that we lost the thread, and I can't even name any after that until I guess Gorbachev. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. Is probably because they're company men. And so they, you know, the party apparatus sort of choose someone who's, uh, who represents maybe the biggest faction in the, the party apparatus and, that person is a company man and they kind of move on. And then when it comes to satellite states, you know, the, the leadership are just puppets of that. So they just kind of work in lockstep with whatever the, this, the, the party or the system requires. And then it trickles down to the people. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's, um, it's a communist system. It's not revolutionary anymore and hasn't been, hadn't been for a long time. It's almost like the, the culture is corporate. You know, the culture is don't make any waves. Uh, yeah. Know, just stay in the middle of the Be a survival move yeah. Up the chain. yeah you know don't go too far at either extreme just stay within these these lines that have been laid down for us from previous you know leaders of the system and that's it and it's that sort of um and that that trickles down like you said even to the average citizen it's you know don't don't make waves don't say different things just do the thing you're supposed to do and that's kind of i think the heart of this essay is the um the sort of parable of the green grocer that and that's that's where I'd heard most of this essay before is when people talk about this example. And he, he says, manager of a fruit and vegetable shop places in his window among the onions and carrots the slogan, workers of the world, unite. Why does he do it? 
What's he trying to communicate about the world? Is he genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? Is his enthusiasm so great that he feels an irrepressible impulse to acquaint the public with his ideals? And of course, that's not the case. It's that he is told that this is what you hang in your window if you're a good citizen. So he does it. Havel says the slogan is really a sign, and as such, it contains a subliminal but very definite message. Verbally, it might be expressed this way. I, the green grocer, X, live here, and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended upon, and I'm beyond reproach. I am obedient, and therefore, I have the right to be left in peace. That is the heart of uh, what Havel calls living within the lie of, of socialism. This is the guy doesn't care about workers of the world uniting. He's, you know, he's a he's a manager. He's probably against that sort of thing. But he knows this is what the system is. They want me to hang this. Okay, no, I'll hang this thing up. I'll, uh, you know, whatever the next slogan from our local party leadership is, I'll hang that one up too. The guy's just trying to get along. And this is sort of the heart of what keeps the automatic post-totalitarian regime going. He he's, he says later in the essay that everybody can see the truth, but everybody also can live a lie if he wants to. And sometimes it's easier. And, you know, if this guy just wants to sell his fruits and vegetables and make a living, he's going to put the sign up and keep his mouth shut. It's not just that the system is making him do it, but he, in in that way, makes the system stronger because he acquiesces in it, because he and everybody else on his street and in his town do the same thing, and they are part of the automatic system. They are part of the, the regime in that way. And I think there are real parallels in our own lives. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't recognize it because it's not quite so extreme. But one thing I was uh, made me think this made me think about is, you know, over the summer when you had those just mobs in D.C. like going mm-hmm. to outdoor restaurants, and that one lady who was just completely accosted by a mob telling her that she needs to raise her fist. And I I forgot what the what the shibboleth I mean whatever this the they demanded the slogan that they demanded her to say and she wouldn't say it and so it was you know it went went viral and that sort of thing but it also made me reflect on a conversation i had with a friend who's of a different political persuasion as us we'll say the least he, he feels this way every time he when he was younger anytime he had to put his hand over his heart for the national anthem like why do i have to do this and anytime that i don't somebody's going to accost me and give me problems <laughs> of course i'm like really <laughs> but, why wouldn't you but yeah <laughs> from their point of view it's the same thing i guess yeah yeah it's 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 forced like societal control thought control that uh, that kind of forces you so i i guess it's the same as kind of somebody saying how are you doing and you know you're we have a we have a standard response which is fine good you know or whatever thanks how about you <laughs> yeah right they don't want to know <laughs> right but this parable i think just speaks so much because we can all understand it Here's a guy who's just trying to get by. You know, he's just trying to feed his family. He's just trying to make a little extra money. You know, he's just trying to get by, probably working like 80 hours a week, 100 hours a week. He gets there first thing in the morning, and he stays until late at night. Look, if I need to put a sign, I don't even know what this sign, I don't care. Like, I'm going to put this sign in my in my front window so that I can get along and get through my day. And the, the problem, you know, that, that he kind of identifies among among others is he calls this, he says that it has a a certain hypnotic charm because in an arrow, he says, when metaphysical and existential certainties are in a state of crisis, this ideology inevitably has a certain hypnotic charm. To wandering humankind, it offers an immediate available home. All one has to do is accept it, and suddenly everything becomes clear once more. 
Life takes on new meaning and all mysteries, unanswered questions, anxiety, and loneliness vanish. This is what I mean that I think there's a, or like a religious element to it. You mm-hmm. kind of outsource your, I guess, perspective on the world or your conscience or however you want to describe it. You kind of outsource it to a more or less trusted source. And even if you don't trust it, it's like, well, everybody else is doing this, so I'm going to do it too, and I can feel comfortable. You know, I, I know that I'm not going to go outside the bounds. I mean, how many times have I you know, read these histories of like these Wall Street big uh, pension fund managers or whatever, and they're not rewarded for making more money. They're just rewarded for going along with the flow. You know, like mm-hmm. if everybody's doing it, I'm going to do it too. I know I'll be safe. Yeah, maybe it's possible that I could earn a little extra if I was a little more risky or a little bit more adventurous or innovative. I don't need to do that, though. I just need to do my thing, follow the crowd, <laughs> do the conventional thing, and I'll be fine. And I feel comfortable, and my conscience feels comfortable, and my family's going to be safe. And uh, that's what it's like, I, is what he's describing. is, you know, On the one hand, it's you and I are reading this, and we're like, how oppressive. And mm-hmm. I don't step back from that. I think it's incredibly oppressive. On the other hand, you could see how some people would find it to be a relief. It's like, okay, I don't have to worry about like all the big questions in life. Somebody else is worrying about that for me. Yeah, and he 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 gets at that in in, in a way that a, a few authors we have we've read talk about. And this is sort of like the question that's been occupying people's minds since the industrial revolution, since since it, since things started to change from the the old medieval order. You know, what who am I? You know, what is what is my place in the world? All of these questions. And you know, as religion fades or, or is oppressed, people are going to come up with something. That's you know, in an era where metaphysical and existential certainties are in a state of crisis, he says. But people are being uprooted and being alienated and are losing their sense of what this world means. This ideology has a certain hypnotic charm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. It's easier. We can't have an opinion about everything. Nobody, nobody has a, nobody has well, we can have an opinion. Nobody has, we can't have knowledge about everything. You know, nobody, nobody knows about every issue going on in his town or his country. But if you are a member of a group, the group might well have opinions. And if you like the group for other reasons, you can say, well, all right, my political party says this. I don't really know much about it, but they're right on all these other things. So sure. That's yeah. That's what I think about capital gains tax. Now, (laughs) who knows if you had an opinion on capital gains tax, but that, but there's no other way to live really than to have some to have a code of some sort. Um, the code that that Havel's confronted with is is the code of the post-totalitarian socialism, which he clearly sees as as false. It's it's not in line with a human society. It's not in line with what people actually need to live and want to live and, and human dignity and all of these things that we th- we in the West think are important and, and a lot of people in the East did too. Um, but it's a system, and it's yeah, it's easy to lay down into it and say, "All right, this is a comfortable place. No one's going to bother me." Okay, this is it. He, he says it offers us the illusion of an identity of dignity and of morality, while making it easier to part with them. Yeah, and the regime itself has to sort of cover for itself. He says because the regime is captive to its lies, it must falsify everything. It falsifies the past, it falsifies the present, and it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics. It pretends not to possess an omnipotent and unprincipled police apparatus. It pretends to respect human rights. It pretends to persecute no one. It pretends to fear nothing. It pretends to pretend nothing. <laughs> and I mean, I think not to this extreme, but I think I think there are elements in uh, 
in both parties who who have become captive to this sort of stuff. You have to cover for the BS. You know, you you pretend so much. And I mean, I, I think Trump is one of these at times, certainly about the election. And uh, Democrats are about this, especially when it comes to critical theory and rewriting history and coming up with a new story, which just doesn't jive with reality. Mm-hmm. But to false, you falsify everything means you just got to change the story and pretend to to fear not, pretend to pretend nothing. Like, no, that didn't happen. Wait, you just said it did. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> you know? uh, it's, yeah, it's like a Monty Python scene. And it, it's it's that's one thing I think technology has been better at is you know he talks a lot about how dissidents had to circulate text secretly in the Soviet Union. You couldn't have a Xerox machine. Yeah. This was, was not allowed because obviously it's like having a printing press. You can publish whatever you want. So things, things had to be copied by hand or by, you know, surreptitiously on a, you know, secret press. Now at least ideas can get out. Although I, I, I used to have more faith in what good that would do. When you see some of the ideas that do get out and are repeated, it's uh, well, it, it's a whole new set of problems. But, you know, as I'm reading this, it's just, you know, this is a pretty searing indictment of, of the entire system of socialism. And he's writing it in a socialist country. Mm-hmm. It, it's very brave. I mean, you can see why people yeah, incredibly not brave. only respected his intellect, but respected his his guts. Because that's like Solzhenitsyn, who he, he mentions a few times here. That's, uh, wow, most people didn't do that. But that's kind of what he gets to in, as he continues this idea of the green grocer and his sign. He says, what happens if... The greengrocer one day refuses. He says, Let's, uh, let us now imagine that once, one day something in our greengrocer snaps and he stops putting up the slogans merely to ingratiate himself. He stops voting in elections that he knows are a farce. He begins to say what he really thinks at political meetings. And that is the first step on the road to living within the truth, as, as Havel describes it. And that He's going to stop saying the lies that everyone else is saying and everyone else knows are lies. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen to him? Well, you know, in a system like that, and this is what kind of what we talked about in the Milton Friedman episode way back in, I think it was season one, when the state controls all the economy, even if they didn't have the right to restrict your speech, which, I mean, they did in Czechoslovakia, but even if they didn't, well, you're going to get fired, you know, and, and your family's going to be out of its state housing and into some worse housing. And you're going to, you know, you might end up in jail, but even if you don't, they're just going to make life really difficult for you. The grocer is not going to be a grocer anymore. He's going to be in some lower paying, more, diff, more, you know, physically arduous job. They're going to, they're going to take it all away. And, and why they have to do this, I think is, is interesting. Is Havel says it, it doesn't matter. This is one guy saying the truth and an entire country backed up by an entire superpower saying the lie, right? Why would the why should the Soviet Union and its satellite states care that one guy says, "Hey, this is all fake," because uh, to Havel, it doesn't the the proportions of, of power don't matter. The example of living a truthful life is a threat to the system, even if only one man is doing it, because it, because then everybody around them can look and say, "Hey, that's that guy is actually kind of onto something." What's he? You know, we all know what this is here. We all know we've been doing lip service to the regime. We all have seen things. We've all seen the contradictions. This guy's actually saying the truth. Maybe maybe he's on to something. And it doesn't take an army. It just takes that, that one to really call the whole system of lies into doubt. Especially when, reading between the lines, what he's saying, too, is that a whole lot of people know that it's BS, that it's not real. I mean, maybe not everybody, but a whole lot of people do. And so he says... This person who 
stood up or if the greengrocer decides not to comply anymore, he has upset the power structure by tearing apart what holds it together. He has demonstrated that living a lie is living a lie. He has said that the emperor is naked, and because the emperor is in, is in fact naked, something extremely dangerous has happened. The greengrocer has addressed the world, and he has shown everyone that it is possible to live within the truth. I mean, what's really assumed here is that they kind of they get what the truth is, and they're waiting for someone to show them that they can actually live by the truth. And it's incredibly courageous, and I think, like you said, he was incredibly courageous to do this. And and uh, what's the name of the the Russian dissident right now who went back to Russia? Uh, Navalny. Yeah, I mean, what incredible courage must that guy have? Wow, it's it's pretty awe-inspiring that you would go back knowing that you're yeah. probably going to be executed uh, and for sure going to spend time in prison. Yeah, it is. And but he's clearly familiar with the concepts. I mean, I think everybody in Eastern Europe probably knows Havel and his work by now because it was so influential in those days. But yeah, that's I think Navalny's living out the same thing, he's saying, Let the people see me. And it also gets at something that Havel talks about later in the essay is, you know, if if you see this corrupt system, if you see the system of lies, it's oppressing people, it's a horrible way to live. Well, you can either have an armed revolt or you can have a legal revolt. And in a system like Czechoslovakia, where the, you know this wasn't in a state of collapse, it wasn't anarchy in the streets, I mean, you could live. It was just not good. He says armed revolt makes no sense. Part of the reason is, in that situation, the force differential does matter, right? One, yeah. one guy or maybe you know, one cell of a resistance group decides they're going to rebel against the whole Warsaw Pact. It's pointless. You just get smashed down, you end up in jail or dead. But by challenging things legally, and I think that's what Navalny's doing in, in Russia right now, you're you're kind of putting it in the system's face. Like, hey, you have these laws, right? We you you want to support the worker, you want to support the average person. You have all these laws that say we have rights. Well, I'm I'm claiming those rights. I'm claiming them in court. I see I'm calling out all of the the lies and the illegal actions. And you have to either you're going to have to either deal with that or shut me up. And either way, the people are going to see what's real. That's that's what's happening in Russia, and maybe maybe it'll work. Maybe it it won't. I don't know. I hope it works. But I mean, it, it worked. It worked eventually in the Eastern Bloc. You know, about ten years after this was published, everything started coming crumbling down. So you know, I mean, Havel was right that that sort of rebellion at least would inspire the people eventually to get to a critical mass that says, "That's it. We we're not doing this anymore." Yeah, and he has this long discussion of of what he calls dissidents, and I. I take that he's talking about himself, but that other people like him. He says uh, a few of the characteristics. They express their nonconformist positions and critical opinions publicly and systematically within the very strict limits available to them. And because of this, they are known in the West. And, and I think that goes along with what you're saying there, making a, a stand based on the laws. It's kind of a reliance, similar to Martin Luther King, for example, or... Mm-hmm. or you know, Gandhi, you're, you're making a reference to, to the laws that, and, and values of the society. He says also, despite being unable to publish at home and despite every possible form of persecution by their governments, these dissidents, by virtue of their attitudes, manage to win a certain esteem, both from the public and from the government, unless they actually enjoy a very limited and very strange degree of indirect actual power in their own milieu as well. Meaning, like what you said, they don't have military might. And they have no ability to fight back, but they do have ability to 
draw attention to something and put the regime in an awkward, uncomfortable position. This either protects them from the worst forms of persecution, or at least it ensures that if they are persecuted, it will mean certain political complications for their government. Hopefully that's true of uh, Putin's Russia right now. I mean, I don't love our political leaders are saying nice things about Navalny, but I hope uh, I hope that if bad fate does befall him, that we could at least make things a little difficult for Putin. Because otherwise, yeah, it's like this this doesn't work. His own people don't have the power, but maybe maybe some of that outside notoriety can move things along. I don't know. Yeah. He also gets into a discussion in here about how the dissident in, in living is living the truth. And I think it's important that he says that it's the truth, not the his truth that we hear sometimes nowadays, where we each have our own truth. Right. He's talking about a real truth. <laughs> right. You know, the truth that is the real human Objective. experience, the, the real life and death, the things that actually work in, in the world and nature. But by living that truth, a dissident can't just withdraw from society. You know, he analogizes it to somebody going off to an ashram in India and, you know, getting his head right and staying there. And that works for him. You know, that works for whatever that guy was dealing with back in his home country. He left and he got, you know, spiritual enlightenment or whatever. But he's not sharing it with anybody else. And not everyone can make that trip, you know. Uh, and he gives the counterexample of Christianity, something that's accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to a different place. You don't have to have money. You can just, you know, live, you know, in 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 accordance with Christian ideas. That that is a truth that people could choose to lead. And this is not an explicitly Christian book, but he does give that as an example. I think uh, Rod Dreyer mentioned this idea too in his book that we read a few episodes back, um, the Benedict Option. It's the same kind of thing. You can't just fully withdraw. You can't become a monk because then you're not a dissident. You're just hiding out. Mm. you're not really trying to do anything to change the system because if you are exposing truth and contrasting it with the system's lies well if you do it you know only in your own house and never never live the truth in your you know out in the world well it's just it's good for you and that's you know it's it's good to be true and live a true life but it uh doesn't help anybody else so i I think that's and that Maybe that's part of what makes a dissident in his discussion is it's not just a dissenter. It's it's somebody who is out there publicly dissenting, publicly saying this isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. And he he goes to great pains to sort of say no dissident would do this for their own benefit because it's just so dangerous. And it really puts their livelihoods and their relationships in jeopardy. And so we're not doing this for notoriety. He's basically saying I'm not doing this for notoriety. There are other things I'd much rather do, but you just kind of feel compelled. And and I mean, it is incredibly courageous, I think. He says, in the post-totalitarian system, he describes it a world of appearances, a mere ritual, a formalized language deprived from semantic contact with reality and transformed into a system of ritual signs that replace reality with pseudo-reality. Should someone possess a more independent will, he must conceal it behind a ritually anonymous mask. The necessity of continually hiding behind and relating to ritual means that even the more enlightened members of the power structure are often obsessed with ideology. That's a different point. But another point that I was trying to make here is stepping outside of the facade and you know calling the emperor naked is tremendously difficult. <laughs> but it's yeah. uh, but he goes on to I mean he's, he's, he spends a lot of time talking about how like just it's just absolutely necessary. These dissidents are not doing it for notoriety or for their own gain, 
they're doing it because it has to be done and we absolutely need them to do it otherwise we're going to we're going to remain trapped inside this system yeah i think that's right and I, I think when you see who's protesting and for which cause you can see really who is putting anything at risk i mean during some of the protests of last summer i saw the, the governor of new jersey was out marching <laughs> you know with with the people for a black lives matter protest if the governor's there is it still a protest against whom is he protesting basically i mean he is the head of the executive branch of the state who is it that is threatening him and what does he have to lose by being there? And what does anybody have to lose? Well, yeah. By being so, there? in the in the in the analogy of the grocer, is he the grocer, or is you know what I mean? Is like is is he, is he, he the he dissident, is. or is he the is he the, the the first round of grocer where the grocer just sort of puts out the sign, the virtue signal, to do what he has to do? Yeah, I think that's right. And because and I think that's even for people who uh, I think it was um, somebody wrote for the Federalist, maybe been Hans Feeney, talked about Selma envy. Basically, the idea of, you know, people of, of this generation who hear the stories of their parents and grandparents in the civil rights movement and, and they're, you know, they're folks of the left today and they want to, they want that action. They, they want that, that cause. But being out there, when, when the government's on your side, when the corporations are on your side, when the professors are on your side, who, against whom are you protesting? And what have you put at risk? You're not a dissident. You're basically the guy hanging out the sign. Right. You know, contrast that with somebody like we saw that there was that employee at Smith College who called out some of the crazier critical race theory stuff going on up there. And her her letter kind of went viral. And there there have been a few others. There, you know, these things keep leaking out. People are saying this is nuts. You know, you see it almost every day now. Those are people who have something to risk, though. Uh, if you work for a big company that has through their HR department and their executives endorsed a lot of the, the sort of radical academic theories like the ones we talked about in the uh, cynical theories episode, well, they have something to lose. I mean, they're most everybody in America is an at-will employee, and most states don't have any protection for political differences. Absolutely. You know, you can get fired for that. Even if you're a state employee, you know, they, they can make life difficult for you, even if there's protections. Even if you're in a union that has protections against, you know, arbitrary firings. They, your employer can make life difficult for you. And a lot of them will, and the government will, and uh, the online mobs will. People are going to come to your house and yell at you if they dox you, or worse. So I, nothing in our society is as bad as what went on in Havel's society. But if we're to make an analogy, I think it's kind of clear which side is which. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the doxing, because I think he, he has this concept called the panorama. seems to me that he definitely had read uh, Foucault's book that had just come out a few years earlier, Discipline and Punish, a book that uh, that we should probably read for this. It's a, as a as a left wing book, but mm -hmm. Foucault has this concept of that he takes from Jeremy Bentham of the Panopticon, which is essentially a, a jail with in the center of it, you have a tower that's clouded. You know the glass is clouded, so you can't tell where the guard is looking at any given time. So he could be looking in your cell, and all the cells are facing the tower. So he may be looking at you or he may not, but just the fear of it keeps you behaving as a, as a prisoner. Mm -hmm. And the analogy here is to say that that's how society works. And so for the, for the panorama, he says the, the green grocer had, had to put the slogan in his window, not in the hope that someone might read it or be persuaded by it, but to contribute along with the thousands of other slogans to the panorama. In other words, he doesn't know if the guard is looking at him or not. So he needs to put it in his window. This panorama, of course, has a subliminal meaning as well. It reminds people where they are living 
and what is expected of them. It tells them what everyone else is doing. This is for the people who see the sign. You know, he, he, he describes mm-hmm. how people see the sign but don't really see it. And if you were to ask them what was in, what was in the window, they would say, uh, you know, or an advertisement for 30 cents off cucumbers or something like that. They, they wouldn't have mm-hmm. even seen it because it's just so much a part of the water that they're swimming in that it doesn't even register. It tells these people that whatever else is they are doing and indicates to them what they must do as well. If they don't want to be excluded, it's a subliminal message to them saying, basically, you need to, you need to stick to the rules as well. Otherwise, you're going to fall into isolation, alienate yourself from society, break the rules of the game, and risk the loss of peace and tranquility and security. So it's kind of like he's using this, uh, this analogy of the, the panorama or panopticon of the society is set up in such a way that you're constantly reminded and you don't know if anybody's watching. They could be. So you want to make sure that if they see you, they, they catch you doing the quote right thing. Yeah. And that's, that, that is, that is definitely the vibe of today, except that back then, at least uh, you knew who was looking and it was mostly the government. Although in a, in a communist society, everybody is kind of the government. So there were informers everywhere. Now, a lot of this comes from, from ourselves, you know, from our own, the populace is enforcing these things, informing on each other, the doxing that goes on online. It's not, it's not everybody who says something bad, but somebody is going to get the mob's attention and then they're all on that person. And it's kind of crazy. But maybe think of today too, is in that when he's talking about the, the green grocers and his, and his slogan, he says that the thing put in the window can't be just, I'm afraid I obey because the grocer would kind of react against that. Yeah. But that's what it's saying. Yeah, It's saying, I'm part of the system. Don't worry about me, pal. But he says the slogan, he says, it must allow the green grocer to say, what's wrong with workers of the world uniting? Thus, the sign helps the green grocer conceal from himself the low foundations of his obedience. I kind of feel like that about, about Black Lives Matter. You know, you can't, oh, you're against that. What, you think Black Lives don't matter? Well, I'm not saying that. But, well, how can you be against the slogan then? Or like, when people say something about Antifa, it's like, well, Antifa just means anti-fascist. Are you pro-fascist? <laughs> Which is a dumb argument. I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want. The Nazis called themselves socialists, but they, the socialists didn't like them. You know, I mean, it's, it's a, it, it's a, it's a face-saving argument here. And that's kind of, it repeats itself. I, I, I thought that kind of stood out from here. It's a, the thing, you know, like the, the hate has no home here signs that we saw all over my neighborhood. And you probably saw some, over time too you know like how do you object to that sign i mean they all they all popped up in november of 2016 so we know what it was about it was a it was a i don't like trump sign but when somebody puts it out you're not gonna say hey that's not right what you like hate (laughs) you think plate does belong here (laughs) right there's there's no there's no arguing with the slogan but there is arguing with what's behind it which is sort of the, the putting it out there like no i'm i'm good i'm not for that guy you know i you don't have to worry about my politics. I'm I'm on the side of the people around here, not not those lunatics. And that's it's a similar vibe. It's not coming from the government. I mean, clearly because it was against the government. But it's 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 in line with popular sentiment in certain areas with elite sentiment. And I don't know. I I just found the parallels interesting. Um, it's like a sort of farcical replay of the same thing. Yeah. Great points. And it makes me think, you know, actually, maybe it is time that we read uh, Foucault because when he was writing and the way that the, these critical race uh, 
crazies that the way that they apply it is to say that it's basically a, a an attack on religion and uh and patriotism and so forth but these days like actually where is the kind of society thought control what, what direction is it moving yeah uh, it uh i don't know it raises a lot of really interesting questions in my mind but all right what are your closing thoughts yeah well i just this is one of the um you know we started this podcast sort of to find the center of american conservatism and what it means and we've read a lot of english stuff too but i i think it's it's been useful to to reach out occasionally to ideas from from outside the anglosphere and and this this particular essay got mentioned in three or four books we've read including a uh, scruton last week because he they knew each other and he worked with uh, eastern european dissonance a lot and it's um it's interesting just to see certain themes are the same across countries and certain aren't, but there's, um, there's a lot that Havel talks about here that, you know, it's a, it's not a very long, it's not a whole book. It's about 80 pages. You could read it quickly enough, but it, ha- it has a lot to say about the way we live, about, about truth itself, about, about living the proper life that is sort of, uh, come down all the way from the ancient Greeks and the, and the origins of Western philosophy. So I, I think it's, um, it's useful. It's interesting, um, and it turned out uh, it turned out to be true. He, you know, he won. He yeah. went from dissident to president. So it's clearly he was on to something, and it's uh, I, I think a, a good and interesting read. Yeah, what a t- tremendous life story, and I'm really glad you suggested reading this because I think that sometimes I know I get stuck in the rut of like, well, that's you're talking about a Cold War book, Cold War essay. Is that stuff even applicable anymore? You know, is, are people going to be bored by it? And mm-hmm. the fact is, this is just as applicable now as it ever was. I mean, first of all, it's an absolute condemnation. It's a mic drop condemnation of socialist <laughs> societies, period. And we need that again today because yeah. we, we can't get that clue. We've already completely forgotten. So that has value. And then also his description of how society... We, when we think of a dictatorship, we think of a Saddam Hussein type of character. But what he's saying is, no, you got to think beyond that. That's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is the structures in society that are just sort of forcing this conformity and not allowing anyone to have their own individual thoughts and certainly not to voice them. You know, the power structures will use these mechanisms like the green grocer putting the slogan in the window you know, as kind of like a a stake in the heart, sort of like this is the symbol of who you are and what you are, and you just you need to remind remember that, and sort of he gets to the point where the green grocers are sort of like, yeah, yeah, we got to put that up, you know, whatever, I, I got to do what I got to do in order to you know, feed my family, do what I need. Anyway, it it also anytime we read, you know, Cold War, Solzhenitsyn, Vaclav Havel, it makes you just so grateful for for what we have in America, and then. Also a little worried for the direction we might be headed. All right, that's it. That's Vaclav Havel. Catch us next time.